In football, anything can happen on the field, and your level of confidence determines how you handle it. And the same goes for moving. It's exactly why Penske Truck Rental equips you with as much confidence as possible to handle whatever comes your way. They do it with newer, cleaner, safer trucks. It's Penske Truck Rental that'll help you move with confidence. Welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast with your hosts Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. The ultimate insider's guide from signing day to the national championship game and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. And welcome back to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. I'm Chip Patterson. That's Martin Simmons. Uh, wow. We've got uh, a, a show that uh, we, we've got breaking news right here in the midst of recording this show. Happy Wednesday uh, to you and yours. We've got an awesome conversation with the always uh, energetic, enthusiastic, and knowledgeable Aaron Taylor coming up in a little bit. He was on the scene for Old Dominion's win against Virginia Tech. He, of course, has plenty of opinions on Notre Dame, including where he thinks the ceiling of this Irish team can be. Barton, um, where, I mean, we, I guess we got to jump right in with Kelly Bryant, right? That's the big news. That's uh, you know that this thing this thing uh, unfolded quickly. Uh, I, I wrote a column yesterday about you know the Trevor Lawrence situation. Dabo made the right call, regardless of what the consequences might be. And here we are, you know, twelve hours later, and the consequences are already playing out. <sighs> Kelly Bryant is piecing out. Yeah. I mean, so. I was not ready. The reason why I was not ready to entertain this idea is because I'd always gotten the idea that Kelly Bryant was this, you know, South Carolina guy, always wanted to go to Clemson. He'd bided his time. He was going to be there and kind of felt like he was almost more in that Jalen Hurts line where, you know, the granted Jalen Hurts told us he wasn't going anywhere. We did not get that from Kelly Bryant, at least uh, from him. So where, like, why, why do you think that things turned this way uh, with Bryant? I mean, in his own words, he said that he didn't feel like he got a fair shake. Um, he's been nothing but a great teammate all along. And, you know, I think he just felt like he deserved that job. And, you know, I don't, I, who knows what has happened behind the scenes? Who knows what has been, what messages have been delivered? Who knows where that uh, belief or opinion comes from you know i i think again there's a couple like i, I think Dabo sweeney based on what he's presented to us Dabo sweeney deserves a lot of credit uh, you know he is first of all he's given he, he's played both quarterbacks throughout the process he made a decision before the fifth game was played, to allow Kelly Bryant, he's exposed himself to losing a quarterback, and Kelly Bryant has taken him up on that. Um, and I think he actually has made the right decision in the sense that, look, Trevor Lawrence has just objectively made the offense more explosive. You can absolutely make a case that you know Kelly Bryant won that Texas A&M game and not Trevor Lawrence. Sure. And and he did. And and yet my counter argument to that is that you're going to like Kelly Bryant still makes the offense better 
and that was game two, hostile road environment, true freshman. Give Trevor Lawrence time to grow over the course of the season. By the time the playoffs roll around, he's not true freshman week two. He is excelling in that environment, and you're going to be the better team for it. So I think, you know, with Kelly Bryant, look, he he felt like he did everything he needed to do, and and ultimately he's going to go look for another opportunity. Um, I'm not going to I'm not going to hold that against him. I'm sure it was emotional, uh, but I think that this is the right decision, and I credit Dabo for making it because it's a hard decision to make. It really is. So what about uh, the the Chase Bryce still left in that quarterback room? You know what is the does this does this change the math about how you view you know you've always been a big proponent about talking about the the health of a room and which quarterback room like as in you know where is the quarterback depth where are you going to be able to withstand the kind of injury hey how does this change things for the Tigers I mean what have we lost Hunter Johnson Zarek Cooper uh, like this the number of quarterbacks that have left Clemson since the arrival of Trevor Lawrence or at least the commitment of Trevor Lawrence you know on one hand it speaks to confirming what a lot of people will believe Trevor Lawrence can be, which is a, a three-year starter with championship caliber type ceiling. But, you know, what about the, the a Clemson fan who's looking at this and realizing that you're putting a lot of uh, a lot of eggs in the basket of a freshman quarterback? Well, first of all, I think Chase Bryce is, is, is very capable. Um, and, and so if they get to the second quarterback, then they can still – I think went out of the regular season with Chase Bryce. Um, there, there, there's not a. I mean, that's a that's a quarterback that's starting in most teams across college football. Um, but ultimately, again, I think this is another. It's just all the more reason just to to recognize how difficult this decision had to be. Not only just from a depth chart standpoint, but but from a from a huge like human decency standpoint, relationship standpoint. Yeah. Um, yeah, you don't, you don't want to, you don't want to have to do this. Um, and there is absolutely a way that Clemson could have played this out where they keep on, they keep on going back and forth. They keep on, you know, they, they, they stretch this thing out. Um, and, and they get to, to the postseason. but I, I just don't think that they would have been the best possible version of themselves had they done that. I, I, I dug into some numbers last night for my story um, that I wrote. And, and ultimately, I think part of this is about – if you think about it, this is exactly the, the dilemma that Nick Saban was, was faced with last year. He had a really talented true freshman in Tua who, I, I, you know, who we now see what he was like with our own eyes, what he, what he is. We saw it in the second half of the championship game, but through this first four weeks, it's, it's pretty clear what Tua brings to the table. Would he have been like looked like that week one last year? Probably not, but that's the point. Is He, he would have looked like that by week 12, and Alabama was too good to lose with him. Nick Saban didn't make that decision. He didn't have that conversation. It was a tough conversation. He didn't have it. That's not a knock on Nick Saban. It was just a decision. Look, you know what? I'm not going to deal with that. I'm not going to deal with handle this problem this way. I'm going to roll with the sort of the, the safer bet. Secure my quarterback room. Secure my depth chart. Whatever. Had he kept Jalen Hurts, it, it, it was almost too late. He, he he made the move for Tua. It was almost too late, but it wasn't. They still won a national title. 
So in a way, you could say that Saban handled it perfectly. But again, he didn't have that tough conversation. I think at, at Ohio State, the same situation existed. I really believe if Dwayne Haskins was a starting quarterback all year for Ohio State last year, they're in the playoffs. Mm. And and Urban Meyer wasn't willing to make that decision because he wasn't willing to sort of betray the personal relationship he had with JT Barrett. He wasn't willing to betray sort of the loyalty that JT Barrett had built up and the experience and tangibles that he brought to the table. Well, that's that's fine. But and and that's I'm not gonna again I'm not gonna critique that decision except for the fact that I think they would have been a better team with Dwayne Haskins. So you know now Dabo Sweeney is faced with this decision, and I think he made not only the right decision in terms of making their team better, but but a decision that he, but he he went in a direction he didn't have to go in terms of a of, of telling Kelly Bryant this early. Part of the reason that I'm that I feel good about Trevor Lawrence at quarterback is some of the numbers that he's put together this fall. When you just look at the offense, um, you know, through the first four weeks of the season, Kelly Bryant has been good, right? He's Clemson's offense has scored on 38 percent, scored touchdowns on 38 percent of the drives where he's been a quarterback. Sure, that's I mean they, like that. That's, that's not good. yeah, that's not a bad success, right? Yeah, they forty seven percent of the time. So basically, one out of every two drives, they're either scoring a touchdown or or try, or kicking a field goal or or trying to kick a field goal. Pretty good. Um, they've played thirty three percent of the time. He's he's been under center, and he's got a couple turnovers. That's all fine. All right, now now you look at what he's compared to in terms of the other playoff contenders. Tua is scoring touchdowns, mind you, touchdowns. 64% of the time, <laughs> 74% of the time, Tua is, is under center. They're either scoring a touchdown or they're kicking a field goal. And he hadn't turned the ball over yet. Dwayne, and, and all these, and if you look at the, the resumes and who these teams have played, it's all fairly similar. Um, Dwayne Haskins, 63% of the time under center, they're scoring a touchdown. 72% of the time, they're having a scoring opportunity with one turnover. So you can see the difference there. And now with, with Trevor Lawrence, the numbers are, are, are close or closer to what those other guys have put together. 58% of the time, Trevor Lawrence is, is, is engineering a, a touchdown drive. And 70% of the time, they're either scoring a touchdown or trying a field goal. He's only punted 20% of his drives. So I think when you look at what – if I'm Dabble, I'm looking across college football, and I'm saying we, we're good enough to win every game with, with Kelly Bryant – but when we play those juggernauts, when we get to the playoffs and we got to play Tua or Dwayne Haskins or Kyler Murray, we got to have some horsepower. And, and Trevor Lawrence may not be the guy for that right this second, but we've got to roll with the guy that gives us the opportunity to add that horsepower to our engine. And, and I think Trevor is clearly the guy that, that gives them that opportunity. Uh, we're sitting here recording this um, probably before you're going to be able to catch it. But 
you get to catch Barton on CBS Sports HQ. Uh, he's going to be on today, this afternoon, so you'll be able to see him throughout the afternoon. You'll be able to see me uh, at some point. I was on last night giving out my early leans against the spread uh, on the Sportsline Edge show with Eric Casilius. Uh, CBS Sports HQ, of course, is an all-new 24-7 streaming sports network. They cut through all the noise and give you straight news, highlights, and expert analysis from people like Barton and myself, but you can get it from all the major sports and what it does is it helps you get smarter faster it's for real sports fans who care about data they care about stats and they want to know what happened in the game no you know that's it's it's that's the important stuff so stream cbs sports hq any time of day you can do it on your roku your amazon fire tv your apple tv your iphone your android phone or online at cbssportshq.com. You can find it all through the CBS Sports app on all those connected devices. And you know what? It, there's no cable TV subscription required. Uh, it is free. You just you fire it up, and you're going to be able to get the best sports coverage available. Uh, also, on the weekends, Saturday mornings from 11 to noon Eastern time, you can get the Sportsline Edge for all the latest picks, updates, and information. Fantasy football today for your fantasy lineups if you're an NFL fan runs Monday through Friday at noon Eastern time and Sundays at 10 a.m. Eastern time. Again, CBS Sports HQ. Find it on your connected devices or at cbssportshq.com. Barton. Yo. Uh... Have you have you made a a final have you made a final decision on which way you're going to lean on your Ohio State Penn State pick? I'm leaning Penn State right now. Yeah, but I did. I mean, but is that is that getting Matthew Mayer real happy? It is. It is. <laughs> it is. Yes. Uh, we're we're talking it this afternoon. Uh, we got a lot of Penn State alums in the CBS HQ producer room. Oh my gosh. It, um, it's a lot. Yeah, yeah. So I'm leaning at Penn State. I'm, look, I, but I, but this that this is going to be an awesome game. Um, I think the reason I'm leaning Penn State right now is just look at what they do. It's almost this is a little Kinnick Stadium ish in terms of like if you're highly ranked, you're coming into a nighttime atmosphere in Happy Valley. It is it's tough sledding. It is it's perilous. Um, you know, last year they they took care of business with Michigan coming to town. In 2016, they beat Ohio State, who was ranked number two in the country at the time. In 2014, before they were even any good, you know, they took Ohio State to overtime. Um, this is just a this is just a tough tough spot, and uh, I think that um, you know it's it's and yet how do you how do you confidently pick against this Ohio State team who truly does look like you know one of the top three teams in the country in terms of just the talent and personnel they're going to put out on the field so it's it's going to be uh, I think it's going to be a really fun game I'm pumped to be there you know I'm have you seen the total on this game it's like 70 something yep see that right yep wow I know and see and this is and this is and like I don't know if this ends up making make, make sure by the way that uh, you dialed in for this locks podcast because goodness gracious, we've got some big swings. You know, I'm I'm coming off my five and three week where I'm seeing the ball, I'm feeling a lot better. I might throw out another eight pack just to just to see what happens. Um, you were uh, you were like a a couple backdoor covers away from seven and one. I know, 
I'm feeling feeling good about it. Uh, so if that plays true to form, which I could see because of uh, you know you take the Ohio State TCU game as an example of how just in, in the way those games are being played right now, uh, the big scores can happen really really quickly. You you look at some of the games that Penn State has played. Uh, I get the math behind it, but seventy some is a huge number for what we've seen when elite, for the most part, what we've seen when really elite Big Ten teams face off in games like this. Well, I'll say this, though. Um, If you're looking at sort of where these teams are strong and where they're weak, you know, this is a Penn State offense that's that's big play capable. Um, Got big downfield receiving threats. Uh, they got KJ Hamler, who's an explosive long long run slot guy. They're they're an offense that that can break big runs out of the backfield with Miles Sanders. If you're looking for a, a, a weakness on Ohio State side of the ball, it's 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 really on the back end. I mean, they've given up big plays in their secondary. Uh, the linebacker play hasn't been quite what we're used to seeing. And then on the flip side, the same thing. I mean, it's like this this Penn State defense has. Yeah, they've they've. There is some inexperience that, that's still getting you know at, at the linebacking position um, in the secondary that's still kind of getting warmed up. And Ohio State is as big play capable as you're going to find with with some of their speed, long ball ability. And then this is one of those big games where you just you know there's just sort of block kicks and there's yeah there's there's defensive scores and. There's just, you know, you just see in these sort of games, I feel like a lot of those moments. Um, so it's a surprising number. And, and yet, like, it feels like this could be one of those games that's just sort of a, a little bit of a, a, a basketball shootout. 38-35 barely goes over or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've seen some of the most talented athletes fail because they lacked one essential ingredient, confidence. Without it, everything else goes to waste. It'll make or break any athlete. And the same is true with life off the field too, especially when it comes to moving. It's why Penske Truck Rental equips its customers with as much confidence as possible to make their move successful. They do it by offering newer, cleaner trucks that are among the safest on the road. Every truck undergoes a multi-point inspection to give you that confidence. Plus, you'll get unlimited miles on one-way rentals. So whether you're Moving across the country or across town, Penske Truck Rental helps you move with confidence. And this episode's team on the move is the South Carolina Gamecocks. South Carolina Gamecocks are in a very interesting spot as they, uh, you know, one and one so far in conference play, in one and one in division play. We've, you know, made a long discussion point, and it'll be a season running discussion point about the order of things in the SEC East. The Gamecocks won 37 to 14 at Vanderbilt. Now they've got another road game coming up. So, you know, just like Penske Truck Rental, they're trying to move with confidence. They are moving with confidence going up against the now ranked and you know just absolutely hot Kentucky Wildcats who are 2 and 0 in conference play 4 and 0 overall um, as we look to a game that has suddenly become another chapter in the battle for second place in the SEC East like I don't think the Gamecocks are going to be able to chase the Bulldogs by virtue of the head-to-head loss earlier this season 
But, uh, you know, what an interesting spot for this South Carolina team. What are your expectations going up against Kentucky? I'm, I'm very regretful I missed this South Carolina Vandy pick last weekend. There was, there was some value there that, that, that I knew better than to, to miss out on. I think South Carolina is good, you know, and, and George is really good. That's the only problem. Um, the thing I, I, the thing, one of the things that's most encouraging about South Carolina is what we saw with Javon Kinlaw last week. He had like five tackles, a couple sacks, a couple, you know, three tackles for loss, force fumble or two. I mean, it was just everywhere. And that's the type of six, six, 305 pounds, just freak show that wins football games, the SEC. You got to have a few of those. And that the light had turned on for Javon Kinlaw, and it's starting to now. And if you get that defense start to really click, you know, I, I think that that alters things um, for for this South Carolina team. You know, I, you still like to see more consistency offensively. Um, you still like to sort of be able to trust the offense a little bit more. But I think we're getting closer to where both units are sort of you know, heading in the right direction at the same time on the same pace. Um, and so I, I think, you know, anybody writing the eulogy for, for South Carolina is, is going to be, you know, mistaken uh, after that Georgia loss because I just, this is just, this is still probably one of the most trustworthy teams in the SEC East. Right. Maybe I, the most trustworthy team in the SEC East. Yeah, I, f- I feel like we were uh, in a position, you know, they had the loss and then their game against Marshall ends up getting uh, canceled because of Hurricane Florence. They just... They fell off the radar a little bit, and I thought that I'm. I was with you. I I didn't. I had. I sort of had that South Carolina Vanderbilt game. I mean, I was. I had it circled. It was. It was sort of fell below the radar for me a little bit, and it wasn't until I started really going back and digging into this week's schedule that I was like, man, I. Especially if you want to consider a potential letdown spot, and I am willing to consider that Kentucky a team that just got ranked for the first time in more than a decade might be a little vulnerable for a letdown. I just think that the the consistency that South Carolina can bring, and you, you mentioned that word trust, the trustworthiness of this spot. I, I wonder if there's some value on the Gamecocks, and I wonder if this doesn't provide a, a big opportunity for them because, look, at Kentucky this week, then they finally get to go back home for three straight home games against Missouri, Texas A&M, and Tennessee. That that can be, you know, two and one in that three-game home stand. And if you add a win here, three and one across this uh, this four-week stretch. I mean, now all of a sudden we're we're looking back at the uh, the over/under win total and thinking that South Carolina is going to be in a good position to at least hit or exceed that seven. But we're still. The, the crossroad. We're not. We've not yet passed the South Carolina crossroads yet, because at the, in the same breath where you talk about sort of what they could do the next few weeks, this is also not an easy stretch. I mean, our my love for this Kentucky team is is you know I've I've, I've been outspoken about it. They got Kentucky. They got a Missouri team that really challenged Georgia last week. They got an A&M team. That looks like one of the best two-loss teams in the country. I mean, that could easily – we could go 3-0, we could go 0-3 in this next stretch. And so uh, just as we're discussing sort of that this is a team that is 
seems to be taking steps in the right direction on a weekly basis, uh, they, you know, there's no time to wait. They better bring their A game to to Kroger Field, uh, and then they got a tough Missouri team coming and a tough Texas A&M team coming, uh, and then they get a little bit of a potentially a reprieve for a couple of weeks. But this is a suddenly the SEC East is is kind of a more rigorous. Uh, division than maybe I, I anticipated heading into the year. That's right. You don't walk into Kroger Food and just expect buy one, get one wins. <laughs> um, no, you don't. Kroger's rocking. Uh, <laughs> and that is our uh, Teams on the Move brought to you by Penske Trucks. Penske, they want to give you confidence for that move, and they do it by offering newer cleaner trucks that are among the safest on the road thanks to those multi-point inspections don't forget you also get unlimited miles on one-way rentals with penske truck rentals because the unexpected is bound to happen and with penske you will have the confidence that you need to be able to handle it it's penske truck rental where they help you move with confidence uh all right you ready to uh bring on aaron taylor And now it's our pleasure to welcome to the 24-7 Sports College Football Podcast. It is Aaron Taylor. You can see him on CBS Sports Network inside college football. He is part of the Upset Crew. Aaron, man. Okay, so we were talking a little bit before we started here, but this this trend of you being in the building and bringing that upset mojo, it, it did not start uh, down at the seven five seven with uh, with the Monarchs beating Virginia Tech, you've been doing this all season, baby. I'm telling you what, man. We uh, Carter Blackburn, John Striffin, and I, and, and the truck, all the people on the ground. There's about seventy of us that travel on a week to week basis. But uh, I think the favored teams, when they see us walk into the booth, their uh, their bones should be rattling because we had San Diego State beat an uh, uh, undefeated ASU team that was looking red hot that had just beat Michigan State the game before. We also had a winless Colorado State team beat Arkansas, which at the time was a pretty big deal. Now, Arkansas certainly has been screwing the pooch ever since then, and they look like they've got some issues. But uh, the, certainly the, the creme de la creme was uh, undefeated, unranked 0-3 group of five Old Dominion program that had been in existence for 10 seasons only taking down the 13th ranked Virginia Tech Hokies that everybody was all swooning over because of how they beat down Florida State in week one. So it was an upset of epic proportions. It was historic. It was in the 757. There was an after party on the field that I got involved with a little bit. <laughs> I was popping corks, shaking champagne, getting down, doing a jig, and uh, it was epic, man. We kind of just soaked it in. Carter and I were, you know, elbowing each other in the booth during the big calls and the touchdowns, you know, towards the end of the game. And he was squeezing my arm as he was making a couple of those epic calls where his voice was cracking, kind of Sean McDonough esque. It was awesome, man. So one of the things that I, I love uh, just in talking to uh, you and your colleagues and peers be, is you get, an, I think, an incredible insight with some of, the, some of the meetings and the interviews and the access that you get leading into the game. So I got to ask, did you get any sense uh, in your preparation and in those discussions that this kind of upset, I think it was like a 28, 29, 30-point spread going into the game, did you have any idea prior to kickoff that this kind of upset might be brewing? 
Well, it's interesting. We knew that Old Dominion was a better team than their record suggested. They were affected by the hurricane, as a lot of teams were. Virginia Tech had some issues as well. I mean, just that whole region was affected uh, with Florence coming through. Um, you look at these sorts of games, and there was nothing, man, that I saw on tape or read on paper that would suggest that Old, Old Dominion had a shot against Virginia Tech, particularly when it was Virginia Tech's defense, even though they only returned three starters, it was Bud Foster. They returned Trayvon Hill, who's now no longer with the team because of things that happened after the game. But watching their offensive line, their inability to run the football, their quarterback, Stephen Williams, who was this mobile kid, got thrown to the Wolves in this game a year ago against Virginia Tech and uh, struggled, it, was, it just didn't seem to be. But to your point, when you sit in those meetings, Coach Frente was talking about, yeah, we're a young team. And anytime you have a young team, there are two things that are difficult to handle, winning and losing. And because they had beaten Florida State early on and looked so good, we all walked away with kind of a sense like, oh, it's going to be interesting to see with the extra time off, being a young defense, maybe they had a false sense of security, and that is exactly what happened. So there were some, also some things that were said or not said that made me wonder you know, what the thoughts were with the coaching staff, with their defensive end, Trayvon Hill, and as it turns out, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back were the unsportsmanlike conduct penalties he got at the end of the game, very uncharacteristic, not very leadership-driven especially for a defense that has so many young players to have one of your leaders and most productive players act the way he did at the end of the game, then on the sidelines, then into the locker room where allegedly there was an incident with him and one of the coaches. It just was a debacle of epic proportions. And I think those are the sorts of things where your ears perk up that you look for during the game that in this case held true. Well, before we move off this game, I want to get your opinion on, on sort of where we, what we should think about Virginia tech now, because my head's spinning a little bit, and, and we got fooled. Chip and I, or certainly I was I was sort of raving about, oh, this Bud Foster defense, they look so good week one, and turns out that Florida State team's not very good. And then they give up 49 to Old Dominion. Do, is this a Virginia Tech team that can make any noise in the ACC? Should we totally write them off at this point? I mean, what, what how should we feel about what this Virginia Tech team is capable of? And, and I'm kind of curious – what your thoughts are on the defense in general after the sort of the, uh, the dichotomy of performances we've seen. Well, hey, could I tell you guys Saturday night because they're going on the road to play a pretty good Duke team, and I think that that game this weekend is going to tell us all we need to know about the Virginia Tech Okies. I actually have Duke winning that game. I like the way that they're playing, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, that defensive line. I think is the strength of, of that unit. They've got some really good linebackers behind them that they keep free that can run around. This Virginia Tech team lost two of their best players. Their best player on offense and their quarterback, Josh Jackson, and they lost their best player on defense, Trayvon Hill, who's been kicked off the team as a result of that loss. This is a talented team. This was the, the worst a Bud Foster defense had ever been taken advantage of, the second highest passing total by a 5'10 former walk-on backup quarterback in Blake LaRusa last weekend. So there are some absolute holes to fix. Now, can I think that, or do I think that Virginia Tech can rebound? Absolutely, but I think it's gut check time for this team, and, and I, I have a sense that it's more likely than not that they get this train back on the tracks, but it might not be immediate. I think this is a patient rebuilding year. That's what we thought coming into this year, right. that with all those departures, seven dudes going to the NFL, how in the hell do you replace all that? Then all of a sudden they have this epic win in week one 
against Florida State and was like, oh, my gosh, they're back. And they're the next coming of, you know, the 85 Bears. Well, that was a little bit of fool's gold, and I think Virginia Tech themselves internally believed it. But uh, it's a blank book, man. They can write their future. I think they get back to a bowl. They're certainly good enough to do that, but it's going to be a long road out for them to climb out of this hole that they dug themselves last weekend. Let's let's go to your alma mater, Notre Dame. Um, I picked Wake Forest to cover against Notre Dame, uh, and then how'd I that saw, work out for you? Well, well, hold on. <laughs> and then I saw, and then I saw, I saw Ian Book announced as the starter, and I was like, ooh, I'm not feeling so good about that pick anymore. And sure enough, Notre Dame goes out there and rolls. I noticed you tweeted something about some sort of optimism about Notre Dame with Ian Book at under center. What? Well, where, where do you see Notre Dame now? Do you think it's a different team with Ian Book? Is that sort of the shift? or, or, or and, and what's your expectations of this squad moving forward? Big game this weekend. You next, Alabama. Bring on Alabama. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll say this, man. I, I, I think I, like a, a lot of Irish fans and alums, were, I mean, keenly aware of, of the limitations at the quarterback position. I'll say this about Brandon Limbush. Great kid. He's the dude that you want to be the face of your program, well-liked on the team, but he's limited in his ability to throw the football. And when you have that limitation, especially with a young offensive line that was struggling to pass protect and maybe get some of the push that they're accustomed to there, it was starting to affect the other positions, right? A quarterback is like a rising tide. It's got to lift all boats. That's what Ian Book did when he came in. He made everybody around him better. He's a gamer. We saw that last year in the bowl game against LSU. He sparks that team. Had three rushing touchdowns against Wake, two passing. Got Alizé Mack, the big tight end, who had been anonymous in that offense, was the leading receiver with six receptions. All of a sudden, his skill set now has a chance to be maximized. So, yeah, I'm a little hyperbolic with saying that Notre Dame's a national championship contender, but not really when you consider as a top-ten team the defense that they have, which is, I think, clearly the strength of the team. They've got more depth there. The back end does a great job of getting their hands on the football. They've got some D linemen that can apply pressure. That's something that we haven't necessarily had in a while. I think Notre Dame is more a complete of a team and more deserving of the top-ten ranking with Ian Book under center than they were in the first three games with Brandon Wimbush underneath there. So their biggest test of the season is this weekend against Stanford. If they can beat Stanford at home in South Bend, you look at the rest of their slate, it should be smooth sailing, and they've got a really good chance to finish the year undefeated. And that's why I think if they finish undefeated, they would absolutely be in the college football playoff. How do you look at Stanford right now? Because certainly even the Cardinals' performance across the season, uh, you know, we've seen teams that are going to stack the box and try and bottle up Bryce Love, but then uh, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside beats you on the edge, and they've got Kobe Parkinson and other big bodies there. The Stanford defense, I haven't quite been able to uh, put my thumb on them yet. They certainly seem opportunistic, as we saw in the Oregon game, but for I think that while this is a, a game for Notre Dame that could make or break a college football playoff run, you know, how do you look at Stanford, a team that still has many more challenges left this season, uh, and th- this is carries a bunch of weight for the Cardinal as well? No doubt, man, and, and I see it like you do. I think the key takeaway for me for that Oregon game was Stanford keeping its composure, never giving up, finding and manufacturing ways to win. It was epic. But I think 
when I started watching the tape, and I'm talking not the TV tape, the game tape, the thing that jumped off to me the most was how Stanford got pushed around defensively. Oregon was taking their lunch money at the line of scrimmage. They were out Stanfording Stanford. Mario Cristobal has done a remarkable job as the head coach working with that offensive line, bringing that physicality back there. And they were very successful running the football. If it weren't for a fumble late in that game with a guy trying to get that extra yards, he had already got eight yards on, on first down. He's trying to get the final two and got their games over. It's a different result. This is a different conversation. Nonetheless, that's the matchup that I'm interested in. Notre Dame's offensive line, which is young, it lost Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey as top nine picks in the first round of the NFL draft. More importantly, I think Harry Heastan went to the Bears as the offensive line coach. There were some serious departures there. This is a, a litmus test for, I think, Stanford's defense in front seven and Notre Dame's offensive line and ability to be able to run the football. Now, the good news for the Irish is they get Dexter Williams back, averaged over nine yards per carry. He provides some bursts. Getting out to the edge and the perimeter is something I think you can do on this defense. I think the Irish will try to make some hay there. But you're right, man. This is a really good measuring stick for both of these teams. But I think that J.J. Arcega-Whiteside and Julian Love matchup, along with those tight ends, is going to be really fun to watch because I've been really high on K.J. Costello, Stanford's quarterback, all season long. He's a gunslinger. He will take some chances, but he's got a quick release, a rifle arm, and he throws the ball beautifully where his tall receiving core can go up and get it. That's going to be a hell of a challenge for this Irish back end, but they seem to be up to it. I think Todd Light, the defensive backs coach there, a former teammate of mine when I was on campus there in South Bend, has done a really nice job there. But J.J. Arcega-Whiteside, 19, and Julian Love, 27, is going to be a good and fun matchup to watch. Is that defense being over? Is that Notre Dame defense being overlooked a little bit? Because I agree with you. I think it is the strongest uh, part of the team and where Notre Dame will be able to lean on, uh, especially if they get this win, then the pressure's going to build and we're going to be talking about them every single week. It feels like in those close games, uh, we're just going to be seeing whether it was uh, the Michigan win or the Vanderbilt win. It's just like that defense seems to be where this Notre Dame team gets its identity. Is that group being overlooked a little bit as one of the better ones in the country? Possibly at this point. I think they'll have a stage and platform this weekend against Stanford to prove that. They've got a Heisman hopeful and Bryce Love, a runner-up a year ago in New York, uh, You know, coming off a 2,000-yard season where he averaged eight yards per carry. The reality is Stanford hasn't been able to run the ball this year. That's why they've been throwing it. Now, San Diego State in week one did a great job of loading the box, and the way that they schemed them up was uh, beautiful. You'd hate it as an offensive player, but looking at it, I could appreciate how they were going to try to force Stanford, and very effectively so, to throw to win. Well, that's been kind of the case. Stanford's offensive line has done a good job, but the running lanes just haven't been there. Well, the good news is they've got a, a throw game now that can complement that and take advantage of it. But to win on the road, you got to play good defense and you got to be able to run the football. So this Notre Dame defense, I think, has a really good chance to maybe make its mark. I think those of us that can appreciate football, that look at game tape and see what they're doing, the depth that they have, they don't have any great players, but they've got two deep and very, very good players. It's the depth, I think, that separates the good from the great. I'm not saying that Notre Dame's defense is great, but they're as deep as I've seen them in key and core positions, particularly on the defensive line. 
that has me extremely encouraged that if they can continue to develop, that they have a championship-run-worthy defense on that side of the ball. It's certainly the strength of the team with Ian Book under center. Different deal now. This is going to be a big contest with some pressure. He's got to be able to protect the football. But I think this defense, man, has all the elements to make a playoff run. Um, whether or not that's good enough to beat an Alabama or a Clemson or a Georgia or a Oklahoma uh, or an Ohio State, that remains to be seen. But I like what I've seen so far on that side of the ball. And one of the one of the reasons we're excited to have you on is you're one of the premier offensive line ambassadors, experts, gurus. Uh, you pay attention to to the trenches. Um, you mentioned Oregon a little bit, but are, as you've scans the landscape and watch film are there any offensive line units that have really caught your attention this year as being really dominant groups groups maybe that we're either not talking about enough or groups that could potentially sort of carry a team further than people are are, are realizing I'm, I'm just curious who some of your some of the eye catchers for you up front have been I got to be honest with you, man. We have as deep and most experienced voting committee uh, of any award out there, over 800-plus years of coaching and playing experience. And we all text message about what we see. We all watch different regions. And kind of our early season takeaway is that more teams are playing their way off the list than are playing their way on the list. I think Oregon certainly caught more people's eye than any unit that we've seen. Alabama's always in the mix. Georgia and what Sam Pittman, their offensive line coach, is doing is pretty remarkable down there. Now, they did lose Ben Cleveland, big number 74. He made a huge difference when he came in last year and started that second Auburn game. Uh, just mashing pulls up, so he's going to be hard to replace. But units like Wisconsin, who were touted early on as being you know, the best-ever offensive line in college football, I think they've still got some room to develop. Boston College, I was really excited about to watch. They've kind of underperformed last weekend. Uh, certainly was not the, the performance that they would want, and certainly with an A.J. Dillon at running back, you would expect them to do better. It's the reason, fellas, we don't put out a preseason watch list because those are worth their weight and salt. It's just they're, they're not very indicative of what we can expect. A couple years ago, Iowa, who was on none of our radars because they just weren't doing much from week eight on, beating three top 25 teams, averaging 220-plus yards per game, just came alive. They were at their best when their best was needed late in the season in November and went on a hell of a run. And it was those last four weeks when you look at the entire body of the work that won it for them that year. So I'd like to come back on in a couple weeks, and and hopefully we've got our midseason honor roll that's coming out. There's some good units, but no real units that have separated themselves. But it's like anything, man. The offensive line – is the most skilled position of any in football. It takes the longest to gel, to get some cohesion, to have that chemistry, which is why from mid-October on, that's where we really see units start to separate themselves. But quite frankly, I've been disappointed in this early season with offensive line play across the board. And of course, that award is the Joe Moore Award for any listeners uh, that have not been paying attention to it. The Joe Moore Award for the most outstanding offensive line unit. Did you, you started the award? Am I right about that? Or are you just the, yeah, the I, chief? No, no, I, I did. Joe was my offensive line coach at, at Notre Dame, and he had this innate ability to get all of us to be the best versions of ourselves, whether you were a walk-on or a college football Hall of Famer. Um, and he coached both equally as hard. He had this knack. And I would do all these talks and, and in my speeches with some of the things that you know he taught me along the way. And I just felt that it was fitting to honor 
toughness and teamwork, these principles that not only football is based on, but what built our country and made it what it is, that it would be fitting to have his name on an award that honored a group or a unit. What was amazing to me when we started conceiving this thing, and it was June 7th, 2015, was kind of the brainchild of this thing when I got off the phone with his son, uh, James, and said, you know what, maybe we should create a football award for your dad. What really stood out was the fact that this was the only award in college football that honors a group or a unit. That football is a consummate team sport and it's the consummate team game, yet all other awards honor the individual. We saw the irony in that and we felt it was very fitting to honor a group, tackle to tackle for what they do together to honor Joe Moore and to have his name on that award. So we're proud about what we're building. We're a new award. We're heading into our fourth year. But our mantra has been, let's be successful before we're sensational. Let's maintain the highest level of credibility that we can. It's an inordinate amount of work. The only way to evaluate this is to watch game film. And all of us put tens of hours, 60, 70, 80 extra hours throughout the season to watch game tape and then jump on weekly conference calls to discuss what we see. So we love it. We're a bunch of fat, unathletic, simply back, <laughs> hairy back dudes that – Love watching tape and O-line play and watching guys mash people up. And uh, it's been an honor, man. I think it's really resonated with people that are all about celebrating the principles of, of toughness and teamwork and what's possible when people come together for the greater good without, without any interest in personal gain. He is Aaron Taylor. You can follow him on Twitter at Aaron Taylor CFB. And uh, if it's cool with you, I'm going to take you up on that and let's get you on later in the season so that once we've had more hours of game film to digest and, and talk about the, uh, the, the ones that have really separated themselves. We appreciate your time. Uh, thank you, fellas. Let's do it again.